If you would, please take your Bibles and turn with me to Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12, where we're going to cover verses 13 to 21, and then next week we'll do 22 to 34, and then we'll take a break from Luke until January, as we're going to have an Advent series that starts after that, and so second to, to last sermon in Luke for this, for this calendar year. Luke chapter 12, verses 13 to 21 is going to be our text today, and if you would, you can follow along with me as we read now from God's Word. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church, beginning in verse 13 of Luke chapter 12. Someone in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But Jesus said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax. Eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord given to us for our good. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his word. Let's pray together. Father, we ask for ears to hear and a heart to believe what it is that you have revealed to be true here in the Scriptures. We ask, Father, for the grace to be convicted where we ought to be convicted. We pray for the grace to be encouraged where we ought to be encouraged. Father, we pray for faith to stand firm and to hold fast to the Gospel of Christ. We pray, Father, that your will would be done even now in our midst on earth as it is in heaven. I pray that you would keep me from error. I pray that you'd grant us discernment. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Last week, you may recall that we considered the important question, will we remain faithful to the Lord Jesus? In the face of increasing opposition, even persecution, will the church remain faithful to Christ? Remember the situation at the outset of, of Luke chapter 12. The Jewish religious leaders are increasingly opposed to Jesus. And even after Jesus is gone, those same religious leaders will continue to persecute Jesus' disciples. So this key question, the question of faithfulness, began with the first disciples and it continues now in our day. As, as opposition and persecution rise, will we remain faithful to the Lord? But friends, we face another threat to faithfulness, one that is more subtle, but just as serious as persecu persecution. It's the threat of prosperity, ease, of being so comfortable with our stuff that we drift away from Christ. As Christians living in the West, this is surely a danger that we face every day and yet also just as surely a danger that we hardly think about. 
Yes, we see the signs of increasing opposition to the church. And yes, we are concerned about the creep of a technology-driven totalitarian world that seeks to inhibit the mission of gospel-loving churches. All of those things are real. But I would say that's not the only danger that we face as we seek to be faithful. Prosperity, ease, a growing love of things, what the Bible calls greed. Friends, that is the threat that we live with every day and yet one that we hardly pay attention to. Let me put it this way. We may face a day in our country where we have to answer the knock at the door and give testimony to our allegiance to Christ. That day may come. But what if they don't need to knock because we're too busy playing with our gadgets and monitoring our investments and being distracted by our stuff? What if they don't even need to knock? All of that to say, friends, prosperity, prosperity, perhaps even more than persecution, is a threat to faithfulness. Now, why are we talking about this today? Nobody likes to talk about greed. It's uncomfortable to talk about materialism, especially considering that every one of us is quite well off compared to the majority of the world. So why are we talking about this? Well, it's because Jesus himself puts the subject before us. You heard it when we read the passage. Be on your guard against all covetousness. Life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. So it's Jesus himself who raises this issue. And this is key, friends. This week's passage has the same theme as last week's passage. It's the, the theme is still faithfulness. Jesus is still concerned that his disciples stand firm in the truth, that they be equipped to be faithful. Last week, Jesus addressed external threats like persecution and opposition, but this week, Jesus looks internal. He calls us to look inside of our own hearts and see that there's this desire for more stuff. And that desire, when left unchecked, can be just as devastating as outward persecution. Just as devastating. So will we remain faithful to the Lord? Both in the face of persecution, but perhaps even more pressing, in the face of ease and prosperity. Will we remain faithful? I pray that we will. And to prepare us for that faithfulness, we need to listen to Jesus in Luke chapter 12 as he warns us in this text against the danger of greed. Now, before we look at the details of the, of the passage, there's a couple of points I want to clarify at the outset so that you will know what I am and what I am not talking about in the rest of the sermon. So I just want to give you two points of clarification before we jump into the details. First of all, Jesus is not opposed to possessions in an absolute sense. He's not opposed to possessions in an absolute sense. Jesus is not saying that faithfulness requires poverty. Rather, Jesus is concerned with our response to our possessions. To put it simply, do we love stuff more than we love God? Do we trust money more than we trust the Lord? That's Jesus' concern. In fact, you can have very little money and still be racked with greed. It's not the size of your bank balance that matters. It's how you respond to that bank balance, particularly in terms of your relationship to God and to others. So that's the first point of clarification. Jesus is not opposed to possessions in an absolute sense. 
The second point of clarification is this. Jesus' aim is not to heap guilt upon us for the things that we do have. His aim is to not make us feel guilty. His aim is not to make us feel guilty for the things that we do have. This is a common mistake when we think about Jesus' teaching. We turn the Lord's teaching into a guilt trip and we think that if we just beat people down enough for the stuff that they have, then they will change and they will live godlier lives. But friends, guilt is never Jesus' strategy and guilt cannot produce the kind of genuine response that pleases God. Conviction is a tool in Jesus' tool belt and he uses it to good effect. But guilt and conviction are not the same thing. What's the difference? Well, guilt is like a hammer. It just smashes stuff. Conviction is like a surgeon's scalpel. It cuts you, but it cuts you in order to heal you and help you grow. So keep that distinction in mind as we go through the sermon. The distinction between guilt and conviction. And perhaps it would even be good to pray right now in your heart that the Lord would humble you enough to receive the points of conviction that are present in this passage and to know the difference between conviction and guilt. So, with those clarifications in mind, let's look at these verses from the Lord Jesus. Why is covetousness or greed such a danger to Christian faithfulness? Jesus answers by identifying three effects that greed has on the human heart. That's what we're going to look at. Three effects that greed has on the human heart. We're going to look at each one of those. And then at the end of the sermon, we're going to come back and we're going to just briefly look at the remedy for greed. So three effects. The first effect is seen in verses 13 to 15. Greed drives us to the love of self. Greed drives us to the love of self. A man approaches Jesus in verse 13 with a seemingly straightforward question. Notice what it says. Someone in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Now, it was not unusual for rabbis to get these kinds of questions. So on the surface, this man doesn't appear to be out of line. But at the same time, the basic question of dividing up assets is not really what this man is asking for. That kind of basic division would already have been settled according to the law. So what this man is asking for is that Jesus would rule against his brother. The, the man wants Jesus to take action against his brother so that the man will get more stuff. In other words, the man is not satisfied with what he has. The, 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 the inheritance has already been divided according to the law. The law was very clear. But the man says, I'm not content with that. I want more. So he asks Jesus to rule against his brother. He wants more and he aims to use Jesus to justify his desire. Jesus, though, as he so often does, gets to the heart of the matter. Notice Jesus' response, verse 14. Jesus said to him, man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? Now, this is more than a flat denial. This is also a reminder of Jesus' mission. Just think about it for a second. An inheritance is an entirely earthly concern. Not insignificant, but also not eternally important. So by asking this kind of question, the man demonstrates that he doesn't understand Jesus. What has Jesus come to do? To seek and save the lost, as Jesus himself says in Luke chapter 19. But that's what the man can't see. He, he sees Jesus primarily in earthly categories. 
So even this initial question and the initial response from Jesus shows that the man's attention is in the wrong place. When given the chance to ask the Messiah a question, the man asks about stuff. He misunderstands who Jesus is. Jesus is not finished, though. You'll notice in verse 15 that he expands the situation by issuing a warning to everyone who's there. Look at verse 15. Jesus said to them, that is to everyone there, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. So the warning is pretty clear, isn't it? Jesus says, watch out for greed. Be on the lookout for a covetous heart that wants more stuff. And that's the essence of greed, friends. It's an insatiable desire to have more than your due. An insatiable desire to have more than your due. And we've all experienced this, haven't we? We look at what we have and maybe we compare our things with other people's things and then that that sense of craving sets in. Sure, I have enough, but I want as much as he has. If only I had X number of dollars more, then I would be, then I would be happy. And that's the downward spiral of a greedy heart. The more you crave the stuff of this world, the stronger that craving gets. And on and on the cycle goes. And so that's the essence of Jesus' warning. Watch out for greed. But there's another question here that we ought to answer. Why does Jesus give this warning in the first place? Why does he give the warning at all? It's a surprising response. If you think about it, the man in verse 13 asked a typical question. It's a typical question you ask a rabbi. And yet Jesus doesn't answer like a typical rabbi. Jesus warns about greed. Why does Jesus go there? Why give the warning at all? What's the point? Well, friends, it has to do with the effect that greed has in a person's life, particularly on how you view other people. The man in verse 13 is thinking about only one person, himself. Covetousness has taken root in his heart. And now, instead of thinking about how to serve his brother, the man just wants more stuff. He's thinking in terms only of his own happiness, That's the danger, and that's why Jesus gives this warning. Like all forms of sin, greed causes us to curve inward on ourselves. right? It causes us to distort our life and curve it inward. And we begin to think of life only in terms of what I can get for me. And in that greed-fueled inward bent, what do we lose sight of? We lose sight of God. And we lose sight of other people who are made in God's image. Greed, like all sin, just curves us inward. And friends, that's why Jesus ends the warning where he does, with a reminder of where life is found. Look at the last line there. Life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. So if life is not found in your stuff, then where is life found? In knowing God. And in loving your neighbor as yourself. But that's precisely what the man has missed. And why has he missed it? Because greed has just sucked all of his life inner. Goes inward. He just thinks about me. So mark it down, friends. One sign that greed is growing in your heart is when you begin to think of people 
merely as means to getting more of what you want. One sign of greed is when you begin to think of people as just the means for you to get more of what you want. That's an indication that your life is curving in on itself, that greed is taking root, and it's driving you to love yourself more than you love others. That's the first effect. Greed drives us to the love of self. The second effect comes in verses 16 to 19 where Jesus follows up the warning with a parable. The second effect is this. Greed dulls our sense of eternity. Greed dulls our sense of eternity. Jesus tells a parable to drive home the point that he's just made. And the parable begins with a man who finds himself the beneficiary of an unexpected windfall. Notice verse 16. Jesus told them a parable saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. So the setting of the parable is pretty straightforward. But here's the key piece of information for understanding what follows. The man in the parable who is already wealthy doesn't do anything to generate this banner crop. Simply by God's providence, the man's fields were exceedingly fruitful. He doesn't do anything to make them fruitful just by God's providence. It happens. Here's why that matters. It frames the entire rest of the parable in terms of stewardship. Right? In terms of stewardship. The problem, as we're going to see, is not the man's wealth. The problem is how the man responded to the wealth that he had been given by God. Again, the issue is not the size of the bank balance, but how the heart responds to that balance. So the parable is about stewardship. That's the setting. A rich man has an unexpected windfall, which causes him to ask in verse 17, what should I do with all this wealth? Sadly, the man has the wrong response. Notice verse 18. He said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. Now, at first, that doesn't seem like a big deal. It was a bumper year for his crops. So, of course, if you've got a lot of crops, then you need bigger barns. What's the problem? Well, notice the man's attitude as he makes these plans. His attitude is shockingly dismissive of God's role in providing his wealth. Notice, first of all, the possessive pronouns in verse 18. Do you see them? My barns, my grain, my goods. Everything is me, my, mine, isn't it? But what did we just see in verse 16? The man didn't do anything to produce this harvest. He simply received it by God's providence. And that fact alone should humble this man. This isn't his grain. They aren't his barns. It all belongs to God, who is the Lord of the harvest. But the man can't see that. His sense of stewardship before God has been dulled by greed. What's more, the man has also lost sight of his own position. Notice now the personal pronouns that suggest the man is sovereign. Look at verse 18. I will do this. I will tear them down. I will store them up. It's as though the man thinks that life is simply in his hands and that he is sovereign. There's nothing wrong with planning for the future. 
But as James reminds us, those plans should be expressed with the humility of, if the Lord wills, we will go and do such and such. But that's not how this man is thinking. He's not thinking, if the Lord wills, he's thinking, I will, because I'm the one running the show. He's lost sight of his position before God. But it's the man's final statement that reveals the true depth of his problem. Notice where things end up, verse 19. The man says, I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. Again, there's nothing wrong with enjoying the good gifts that God has provided, but that's not what this man is doing. This is not enjoyment as an expression of gratitude. This is indulgence as an expression of unfaithfulness. And there's a difference. In short, this man thinks that his future is secure because he has secured it. I've got enough. I don't need to do anything else. I don't need to think about anything else. I don't need to plan for anything else. I've done enough. The future is secure. I've secured it. And that's the problem, friends. Again, consider what's missing in verse 19. The man says to his soul, relax, eat, drink, and be merry. He thinks about himself, but what is he missing? Any concern to love God? Any concern to love his neighbor as himself? The great commandments play no part in the man's planning. He prepares for the present, but he fails to think of the eternal. And how did it happen? How did his heart become so dull to eternal realities? Through greed and covetousness. Look, this is the real danger of materialism. Money in and of itself is morally neutral. But the love of money and obsession with things has a powerful ability to dull our sense of eternity. What do you mean by that phrase, this sense of eternity? Well, remember the book of Ecclesiastes, that God has written eternity on every person's heart. That this sense of eternity is a recognition that there is something beyond this life. But that sense is dulled when we allow greed to grow in our hearts. The more we fixate on our possessions, the more distant and dim eternity becomes in our perspective. And over time, the effect is that we begin to live as though this present world is all that matters. Instead of living before the face of God, we think in terms of today's pleasures and profits and pursuits. Brothers and sisters, I just want to tell you, that's a small way to live. That's a small way to live. For me, that's the most striking takeaway from verse 19. Yes, the man is wealthy. Yes, he's comfortable. And yes, part of me thinks it would be really nice just to put my feet up and take it easy for the rest of my life. But in reality, it's all a mirage. Verse 19 is a picture of a small, unsatisfying life where the sense of eternity has been dulled by things like barns and bank balances. So I'm just going to state it clearly, just so we know that we're all on the same page here. Each of us has a soul that will live forever. And each person's soul is made to be satisfied in God. Our hearts are restless until we find our rest in Thee, as Augustine once said. That's how God has designed our souls. 
with a sense of eternity that tells us we were meant to live for something more. You know that deep sense of longing that you experience in the soul? I, I wonder if you can relate to this. Do you, know, do, you, do you know that deep sense of longing that comes sometimes perhaps when you're listening to a beautiful melody or, or watching a, a blazing sunrise or when you look into the face of a, of a dear loved one? Do you know that sense of longing that almost feels like homesickness? Do you know what I'm talking about? My kids are learning to play the piano and they're learning to play this really short piece of a symphony. It's called the New World Symphony. And there's a movement in the notes that makes my heart hurt. Why? When I take the trash down on Monday nights, I stop at the end of my driveway and I look out to the west and I watch the sunset and my soul aches. Why? Because we're made for something more than this world. We're made for something more than this world. And that sense of longing is designed by God. And it's telling us that we were made for another place. C.S. Lewis once said, If I find in my heart desires that this world cannot satisfy, the only logical conclusion is that I must be made for another world. Yes! Yes! But that's the danger of materialism. It's an anesthetic for the soul. It numbs you to things beyond what you can see in the here and now. It dulls your spiritual senses. But since no possession can satisfy your heart and no amount of wealth can ever replace God, we just end up looking for more things. We just end up craving more stuff. We end up chasing more possessions, better things, newer things, more up-to-date things. And it's all fruitless. Because only God can satisfy the heart. So I don't know what you're chasing as of late. And let's just be honest. Everybody's chasing something. Okay? There's nobody in here who can sit on the high chair of holiness here and look down their nose at the rest of us. We're all chasing something. I don't know what you're chasing, but I'm sure that it's been something that you're running after other than God. And so one of the takeaways of this passage is just very simple. Stop chasing the other things and run hard after God. That's what the man can't see. Put down the other pursuits. Confess where greed and covetousness have taken root. And then turn your pursuit to the one that you were made to know. To God in whose presence is fullness of joy and at whose right hand are pleasures forevermore. Friends, have you read in the Psalms lately and have you ever noticed how rich the language is of the psalmists that were made to know God? The psalmists don't ever tell you to keep a rational chart like a spreadsheet of calculations and to weigh the pros and cons and then to you know, logically deduce that knowing God is better than the things of this world. That's not how the Bible operates. The Bible says, taste and see that the Lord is good. In His presence is fullness of joy. And at His right hand are pleasures forevermore. So whatever you're chasing, this passage through the man in the parable is telling you, put down that pursuit and look to God, who's the satisfaction of every human soul. That's the second effect. Greed dulls our sense of eternity. The third effect of greed also has to do with our relationship with God from verse 20. Greed blinds us to our divine accountability. Greed blinds us to our divine accountability. 
As verse 19 ends, we have to admit that the man's position looks pretty good in the parable, at least on the surface. He's got plenty of money. His future's secure. He doesn't have to worry about anything, so he can just coast. Verse 19 is a picture of a very assured man. He's very assured of his own sovereignty. And that's precisely the problem. Verse 20 interrupts the man's life with the suddenness of a lightning bolt and it shatters the man's delusions. Notice verse 20 where we get God's verdict. God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? Of all the things God can call a person, fool is probably the one you least want to hear. This wealthy, self-satisfied man is a fool. By thinking only of the present at the expense of the eternal, the man has blinded himself to reality. He is not the master of his own fate. In fact, notice that word in verse 20, required. His soul is required of him. Required by whom? By God. That's what this man has lost sight of. Blinded by his indulgent greed the man has forgotten that he will have to give an account to God. Sure, his life is comfortable right now, but that life can end at any point. And when it does, there's no amount of earthly wealth, no amount of prosperity that will add to your status before God. Rich and poor alike will stand before the Creator, and the rich will stand there as much in need of God's grace as the poor. And so the man is a fool. He has forgotten God, the sovereign Lord who cannot be bought off with wealth, and he has forgotten who he is, a creature that will one day give an account to the Creator. He's prioritized material possessions at the expense of eternal realities. And it's such a sobering statement in verse 20. Fool. The man is a fool because he holds on to what he cannot keep in hopes of gaining what he cannot buy. And friends, that's where the parable ends. With this sobering picture of a man who trusted in what cannot save him. That's the key. Again, the problem is not that the man is wealthy. The problem is that the man trusted in his wealth rather than in God. In fact, that's, that's the question of the parable that the Bible puts before us this morning. What are you trusting in? Everybody is banking their life on something. What are you banking your life on? Doing enough good things, or at least enough good things to balance out the scale with what you've done wrong? You can't earn heaven. The standard is perfection. You can't earn heaven. What are you banking on? Having enough comfort in this life and thinking that it'll carry over into the next one? You can't take it with you. So what are you banking on? What are you trusting in? Everybody's trusting in something. Even an atheist is trusting in something. So if you're not a Christian this morning, and a Christian is someone who's repenting of their sins and trusting in Christ's death and resurrection to save him or her, if you're not a Christian in this morning, then the, the man in this parable is giving you a glimpse of the future. You know, People sometimes say, I wish God would just tell me what's going to happen in the future because then I would know what to do. Okay, here it is. This parable is a glimpse of the future if you're not a Christian. 
You can make the best plans in this life and you can store up all of the material credit you can get your hands on. But if you focus on the present at the expense of the eternal, then God says you are a fool. That, that's, not, that's not me saying that. That's, that's God. If you focus on the present at the expense of the eternal, God says you are a fool. It's a glimpse of the future for you. But here's the grace, friends. By putting this parable in the Scriptures, God is calling you right now to trust Him. If you're not a Christian this morning, the response to God's Word is to do what the man in this parable would not do. The response is to trust Christ. The response is to invest your life in the eternal truth of God's Word. To believe and confess that your sin is so great. Only the death and resurrection of God's Son can save you. That's the response here, to trust in Christ. Remember, rejecting God doesn't always look like outright rabid hatred. Sometimes rejecting God just looks like distraction and indifference. So if you're not a Christian this morning, with great grace and patience, God is calling you here in His Word to bank your life both now and for eternity on what He has done in Jesus Christ. Trust Him. Greed blinds us to our divine accountability, but by His grace, God opens our eyes to see and to trust only in Him. So we've come to the end. We've considered the effects that greed has on the human heart. And what I hope you've taken away is that greed is as much about God as it is about our stuff. The danger of greed is that it drives us inward, which is to say it drives us away from God. It dulls our spiritual senses and it blinds us to our accountability before the Lord. Greed, in other words, is deadly because it keeps us from God. And so, as we close, there's this final question that's facing us. What's the remedy for something as powerful as greed? What can free us from the blinding effects of covetousness? What's the remedy? What's the answer? Brothers and sisters, the answer is nothing less than God Himself. That's the remedy, the final point that I want to leave you with today. Greed is broken only by the power of a greater treasure. Please, listen to this. Greed is broken only by the power of a greater treasure, and that greater treasure is God Himself. Notice where Jesus ends, verse 21. So is the person who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Friends, what a wonderful picture Jesus gives us, that of being rich towards God. That's the remedy to greed and to covetousness. It's not to live an austere life. It's to pursue God and to know Him, believing that He is the treasure that will satisfy our hearts, that His riches in Christ are abundant and glorious, and that they make the things of this world look cheap by comparison. So how do you become rich towards God? What does that pursuit look like? Well, Jesus is going to give us more insight into that next week, so you have to come back next Sunday to learn the full answer. But for now, it's enough to say that being rich towards God means being connected to the two places where the treasure of the gospel is most clearly present. 
God's Word, and God's church. Do you want to be rich towards God? Then invest your life in God's Word and in God's church. As we grow deeper in the Scriptures, we grow deeper in our knowledge of God. And then seeing God more by faith, we come to know Him as the one who satisfies our souls. We find that His presence is full of joy and that His steadfast love is better than life. We treasure God as we grow in His Word. So if you want to be rich towards God, then be rich in the Scriptures. We also grow rich towards God as we grow in our love for the church. Remember, I was just talking to Laura about this. We were talking about what do you think is the big grand weakness in the church in America? Yes, those are the kind of things my wife and I talk about on Saturday night. It's thrilling. What's the big grand weakness? Is it that our view of salvation is too low? Maybe. Is it that our view of God is too small? Probably. Is it that our view of the church is pretty out of whack? You betcha. Yes, it is. Remember that the glory of God is seen most clearly in Christ. And Christ's redeeming glory is seen most clearly where? In the church. He died for the church, right? So if you want to grow rich towards God, then grow in your love for the church. As we come to love one another and serve one another and worship together, we see the fullness of God's grace at work in His church. We see brothers and sisters with different gifts than ours, and we, we benefit from their gifting. We meet brothers and sisters who are strong in the faith when we are weak, and we depend on them to help us keep running so that God's grace is worked out in our midst. Friends, when that happens in a church, our hearts grow rich towards God. Not simply because the church becomes more enjoyable to us, but because we see God in the church. This is probably a point that I should have been emphasizing more through the years at, at Midtown. We want a healthy church. We've been saying that from day one. We want a healthy church. We want a church that's growing in all of the right ways. But here's the clarification that I should have been better at making. We don't want a healthy church so that we will have more of our needs met. We don't want a healthy church so that we will be more comfortable and find more things that we like. No, friends, we want a healthy church because we believe it's here in the fellowship of the saints that we come to know and treasure God. You, you see the difference? One is I want my church to be better so that I'll like it more. The other is I want my church to grow because I want more of God. By nature, we're inclined to this one. And by grace, we need to be inclined this way. So how do we become rich towards God? We grow in His Word, and we grow deeper in our commitment to His church. I've never met a Christian who loved the Bible and loved the local church that was not intensely joyful and happy in God. So let's aim to be rich towards God, friends. Let's lay aside the craving for more stuff, that cannot satisfy, and let's run hard after God, treasuring Him in His Word and knowing Him in the life of His church. And by His grace, on the last day, we won't hear that horrible word, fool. Instead, by His grace, we will hear on the last day, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your Father. May it be so. Amen. Let's pray. Father, help us. All of our best efforts are not nearly enough, God. 
And so we pray that you would take your word and bear fruit in the life of your church. We pray that you would take our desire to serve you and cause it to bear fruit for the glory of your name. We pray, Father, that you would please turn our hearts away from the things of this world and that we would treasure Christ, that we would grow rich towards God by growing deeper in the scriptures and growing more connected and more committed and more faithful to the church of the Lord Jesus. Help us. Father, we want to be rich toward you. And so often, Lord, we don't, we don't exactly know where to start. So we want to start with the humility of confessing that we've loved other things more than you. Please forgive us and give us eyes to see how great and glorious and satisfying and wonderful you are. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.